You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Plains Church in Castleton, North Dakota. This teaching is meant to encourage you in your faith, but not replace the preaching and accountability that should only come from your own local church. That said, we hope this sermon helps you know God more by simply listening to what he has to say in his word. Well, good morning once again, and welcome to Harvest Plains Church. Uh, As many of you know, we as a church entered a new sermon series on church elders. Uh, If you're new here this morning, let me just catch you up to speed a little bit. It's not that we're too far into the series. We just started it last week, but it's only a three-week series. Uh, Last week, we looked at the roles and responsibilities of church elders. Uh, This week now, we are going to uh, get into the qualifications of church elders. So if you would, I want to invite you to turn open God's Word to 1 Timothy this morning, uh, where we are going to read together and then teach through uh, 1 Timothy 2, uh, verse 11, all the way through 1 Timothy 3, verse 7. And as you make your way over to 1 Timothy, uh, let me explain why we are in this series, Uh, again, especially if you're new. And it is because in the coming months, uh, we as a church are going to do something uh, very significant. Uh, We are going to appoint elders in our church. And so I thought, uh, given then that... uh, that this is something we're going to do, and we're going to do it together. It's not something that I do autonomously or independently. It's something we as a church do together. Uh, two things I thought would be important for us to cover um, in order to help us out. Uh, first, I, I want us to make sure everyone knows uh, why we even care about having elders. Like, why, why do we even go through this process? Uh, I want that to be clear. Uh, but secondly, I want to make sure that as we appoint elders... Uh, that we truly are appointing the right kind of uh, men and, and that we are holding them accountable to the right kind of ideals that God calls them uh, to exemplify. So with that said, uh, follow along with me as I read our verses for us, beginning in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. The Apostle Paul writes, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, Do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Um, As we get into this text, I think it's important to start with a little background information uh, uh, regarding 1 Timothy. Uh, Keep in mind that this is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote towards the end of his life. 
And he wrote it, as we know, of course, to his disciple, Timothy. Why? Well, ultimately, uh, Paul wrote this in order to ensure that as the ministry of the apostles came to an end, and the ministry of the church moved ahead, that the church would know with certainty and with clarity how it ought to function and behave so that it would thrive in a post-apostolic era. And this would be important, especially as the constant threat and onslaught of false teaching would be a regular challenge for the church. In other words, this was a letter to ensure the health, development, and advancement of local churches so that they would be what God always wanted them to be, pillars and buttresses of the truth. So that's the overarching purpose of Timothy. As such, then, in this letter, consider what Paul gives us. He provides for us timeless principles regarding how we ought to approach ministry and how we ought to do ministry. Now, certainly there were specific challenges going on uh, with the church at Ephesus uh, that Timothy was to address, but it's clear, as Paul provides instructions to him, uh, that he also intended his instructions to shape local churches everywhere and for all time. And looking at this letter then, consider some of the things that Paul talks about. Uh, first, as I just mentioned, certainly he deals with uh, false teaching and false teachers and confronting their error. Um, but he also explains other things, such as how men and women should behave in public worship. And in some sense, what public worship should be focused on. And moreover, we also know that he provides instructions for how the church ought to be structured and who should serve in its offices of leadership. So needless to say, there's a lot in this book for the church, but this morning I simply want to focus on the parts that tell us about leadership in the church, and more specifically, this is what I want us to point out this morning, I want us to see five requirements that one must meet in order to become an elder. Five requirements that one must meet in order to become an elder. And honestly, I have labored so hard this week to try and make this sermon concise, especially since I knew there were going to be some added elements of baptism and welcoming in new members. Uh, so we've got five points. They're all important, and I will do our best to stay on task here. Uh, that said, let's get into our first point. Requirement number one is this, that someone who would become an elder must be a man, must be a man. And if you would, look again in your Bibles at 1 Timothy 2, uh, specifically verses 12 through 14. Paul writes, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, certainly there are seemingly an unlimited amount of knots that we could try to unravel from this text, and I'm not going to try and unravel all of them, because um, we just we don't have the time this morning, and there's, there's many points to make from 1 Timothy. But... Um, uh, as we get into this, I do want to unravel a few of them. However, before I unravel any of them, I want to be clear about this. Uh, I want to be clear that when it comes to men and women, that the Bible is overwhelmingly clear that 
men and women are equal in three different ways. Uh, First, they are equal in dignity, honor, and worth because they are made in the image of God. Secondly, uh, they are equal in their spiritual standing since through faith in Jesus Christ, they are co-heirs to the throne of grace. Third, they are equally gifted by the Holy Spirit since both have been given to uh, giving gifts in order to serve and build up the church. That being said, however, this does not erase the fact that God has made women differently than man and also given them different functions both within the family and in the church. And with this in mind, there are three things that I want to address now from these verses. First, the context. Second, the prohibition. And third, the reasons for the prohibition. First, the context. Now, keep in mind what precedes these verses. If we looked at 1 Timothy and we read a little before these verses, one thing you would notice is how Paul was just talking about how prayers ought to be made in public worship for those who are in authority. Therefore, as we think about Paul's comments, specifically about women remaining quiet, it has to do especially with behavior when the church is gathered together. In other words, he is not saying that women should never teach, but that they shouldn't do it when the church comes together, nor should they do it over other men. And it's important that I point this out because we can think of plenty of times when women should engage in what would be considered teaching. For example, Paul says in the book of Titus that older women are to instruct younger women. Additionally, we could mention Priscilla and Aquila, a married couple who ministered together and even helped this famous preacher and leader, Apollos, understand the way of God more accurately. We could also mention how Timothy's mother and grandmother, uh, of course the person that Paul is writing to in this letter, uh, how he was raised in the knowledge of God because of his mother and grandmother. More could be said on this. I could, again, try and clarify in a million ways, but this sermon would die the death of a thousand clarifications. But ultimately, here's my point. All women are called to do what Christians are called to do. They are called to evangelize the world, make disciples, and build up the body of Christ by speaking God's truth. As such, then, women will counsel, lead Bible studies, teach sound doctrine. But as far as assuming the role of leadership and teaching over men when the church comes together, it's clear that this is prohibited. Second, the prohibition. And certainly two questions need to be addressed. First, we need to ask what kind of teaching is Paul prohibiting? And secondly, are teaching and exercising authority two ideas or one? In other words, is Paul against, say, authoritative teaching? That would be carrying one idea uh, with these two words. Or is he against a woman teaching and or exercising authority? Two ideas. First, let's deal with the nature of the teaching. Some believe that Paul is only prohibiting women from heretical teaching or the wrongful use of authority such as lording it over men when they have authority. So they assume or read into this text uh, something of a negative idea with these things. So they say it would be okay for a woman to teach if she teaches what is true, and it would be okay for her to exercise authority if she does so uh, with the right recognition and with the right humility. But is this the case? 
Well, I would caution against this um, way of handling God's word for at least one big reason. Most notably, because if Paul had wanted to prohibit women from teaching falsehood specifically, he actually had a word uh, to point out this negative nuance, heterodidaskalane, which he could have used, as he had actually done in the opening lines of 1 Timothy, where he says, charge certain persons not to teach, and here's the translation of heterodidaskalane, any different doctrine. Okay, He's, he's obviously saying there... Uh, don't allow wrong teaching to take place. But that's not just true for women. It's true for everyone, right? It's true for men and women. So he could have used that word right here in 1 Timothy 2, but he doesn't. So we must assume he meant something positive, especially since the word for teaching is interpreted positively in every other place that it is mentioned in First and Second Timothy. And by and large then, and here's the principle that I'm advocating for this morning, and hopefully it's a tip on Bible interpretation as you study your own Bibles, but unless you have a very good and compelling reason to change the interpretation of a word, especially when it is used often and frequently in one particular way, what should you do? Don't change the meaning of the word. So that's the first question. Now let's deal with the second regarding whether Paul has two things in mind or one. Which is it? Well, in this verse, it's clear Paul refers to two things, especially since he uses a coordinating conjunction, which is translated as or rather than a subordinating conjunction. In doing so then, Paul makes it clear he's seeing these as two distinct ideas. In other words, Paul does not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Now, obviously, these two things are related to each other in that Teaching is one of the main ways that church leaders exercise authority, but it is not the only way. Therefore, Paul encourages submission to leaders of the church in both. So women are not to teach, nor are they to lead over men. And this will become even more clear as you come into 1 Timothy 3 and as we look at verses 2 through 7. So that's the prohibition. Now let's look at the reasons for the prohibition. The reasons for the prohibition. Please look at verse 13. We read, for Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. So there are two reasons, quite simply, that Paul provides for not permitting a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. And what are they? First, because Adam was created before Eve. It's really that simple. He was first, Eve was second. And secondly, because Eve was deceived and tricked by Satan into disobeying God. Again, there's much I could say about these two verses. I won't get into them too much this morning. But what I want to point out mostly is that as Paul provides the reasons for the prohibition, prohibition notice what the argument is not. It is not an argument from the cultural or social unacceptability of having women teach. In other words, Paul is not saying, well, we can't have women teach because... It's just, it's just not socially acceptable. People don't do that, okay? As though he's leaving the door open to say, well, one day it will be socially acceptable, and when that day comes, then women should do it. No, he, he looks at this order of creation, this fixed, unmovable reality that this is how God had designed it to be from the very beginning. 
In light of this, then, here's what I want you to reflect on, that as you enter 1 Timothy 3, one question would certainly seem obvious, and it is this, if then women are not to teach or exercise authority, who then are they to learn from and submit to? Well, as Paul explains, and this is true not just for women, but for everyone in the church, from called men of God, from called men of God. So the golden question then becomes, what? Who are these called men of God? How do we identify them? How do we recognize them? What are their qualities? What are their characteristics? Who are they? Well, that's what Paul goes on to explain and what we'll continue to look at. So an elder, point one, requirement number one, must be a man. Now let's notice the second requirement. Requirement number two, he must have eldership aspirations. He must have eldership aspirations. I want you to look at 1 Timothy 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So Paul says that anyone who would become an elder, what must be true of him? Without a doubt, he must have his heart set on the work. Paul uses two words here to provide some perspective on what he means First, the word aspire means to strive after something, literally to strain or to stretch out for it. But secondly, the word for desire here, that he desires a noble task, is the word epithumia, which is a word that could also be translated as passion. He has a passion for the work. Therefore, a man, he's got to be convicted and compelled, and, and truly there's got to be this internal, what we would call this internal call to do the work. Epithumia, I want you to understand, has strength with it, which is why when it's used negatively, it's sometimes connected to sexual desire. Obviously, that connotation is not carried here, but still, it's a word to communicate strong passion that one must have. And let's think about this for a moment, why, of course, this would be uh, very important. Uh, for a moment, I want to ask you a, a simple question. Uh, how many of you have had parents force you to be part of a sports team or an organization that you had absolutely no interest in being part of? By show of hands. Okay, we had some. Wow, some of you had really nice parents. I can think of a few things my mother made me be part of that I didn't really know why I was part of or necessarily had a desire to be part of. She's here this morning. I'm saying this in complete transparency to you. Um, but, of course, um, if you do this, right, then what happens? If someone does this to you, what happens? Well, obviously, everything you do with that sports team or that organization is, is total drudgery, Right? Like, you don't want to show up to the meetings, you don't want to go to practice, you don't want to work on your form, you don't really care to improve at whatever it is that they're asking you to do. There's bitterness, there's backbiting, there's complaining, there's all of this. When you see the date on the calendar for which the meeting is taking place, you're going, oh, really, again? i got to go hang out with these people and do all this stuff I don't want to do, right? Everything becomes drudgery. And listen, the same is true for those who become elders if they don't have the passion. They absolutely must have the passion because the same will happen 
as with the person who doesn't want to be in the, on the sports team or some organization. And they will especially complain and become discouraged and frustrated as they meet various trials in doing the work of eldership. Because the work is hard and the labor burdensome and the hours are long and the responsibilities many. There are people to counsel, problems to solve, conflicts to reconcile, ministries to organize, relationships to mend, things to pray for. The list is incredibly long. So you need to be someone then who has an absolute passion for the work. And this is true, of course, for all pastors, but I just want you to think about the men that we are looking at appointing because, you know, they're like everyone else here. They have day jobs. They have families to raise. They have things going on. And so these are the responsibilities that they're called to, and yet all of these responsibilities they are committing themselves to that are above, are above and beyond everything else they already do in life. They are not compensated for their work. This is 100% self-initiated and is an offering of the free will of their hearts, right? So you have all these challenges, you have a limited amount of time, you're not compensated, you better love the work and be aspiring for it and have a passion for it. So that's requirement number two. You must have eldership aspirations. Now requirement number three, they must have godly character. Must have godly character. Paul says it like this, an elder must be, look at verse two, above reproach. An overseer must be above reproach. Now again, just remember last week, we talked about the various words that are used to describe the one and same office. Uh, we've got the word elder that's used, but in other places, such as in verse 2 here in 1 Timothy 3, we see the word overseer. There's also another word that's used in Scripture, and that's the word pastor, also translated as shepherd. So, so a person who's an elder is an overseer because they have a stewardship given by God, and they also are shepherds because they've been called to care for the sheep of God. So I want to focus on this word now, above reproach. And what you probably need to understand is that this, this word, that this phrase, it's an all-encompassing term. So everything that follows then in verses 2 through 7 describes what it means to be above reproach. And yet, we should still address what is the definition of above reproach. Quite simply, we could say it like this, it describes someone who is not open to any immediate accusations that would defame his character, his choices, or his integrity. The kind of man that if, if any of these matters were brought up, people go, well, that's certainly not true of that man because I know them and I've been with them and I've seen them and I know the quality and the character of their life. Again, everything then in verses 2 through 7 flesh this out. Well, how, how do we determine if someone is above reproach? That they are not open to immediate charges of, that attack their decisions. We're going to have a lot of qualities here regarding their character. 
Quality number one, look again, 1 Timothy 3, let's just follow these through. Quality number one, first Paul says that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Okay, this is not to say that uh, an elder must be married. Actually, this week I met someone who held pretty strongly to that position. That was the first time I have ever met someone holding that position. But we know that that's not what Paul meant because we know Paul himself was not married. And he even praises God for the gift of singleness and how God can use singleness in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So what is meant by this, this husband of one wife then? Well, all Paul is saying is that uh, whoever becomes an elder must be a man of purity. If he's single, certainly this means that he has his desires under control. He doesn't look at pornography. He doesn't interact with women inappropriately. Uh, Above all, he flees sexual immorality in all of its manifestations. For the married man, of course, all those things would apply as well, but uh, he is faithful and true to his one and only one wife. So he is not a polygamist. He doesn't have multiple wives. If Paul were writing this today in America, he may not have included the statement like this, but polygamy was more of a thing in the early days of the church. So he's not a polygamist. He doesn't have an open marriage, none of that stuff. Quality number two, he must be sober-minded, temperate, sensible, a stable person. That's the sense of it. Quality number three, he must be self-controlled. And this means he's, he's got to be level-headed in terms of his thought life, his emotions, and his will. And he is sensible in terms of his discernment. He's not a man given to extremes. Quality number three, or excuse me, quality number four, he must be respectable. He must be respectable. His lifestyle itself, the way he cares for people, the things that he does, people just respect him for who he is. He doesn't have to try and intimidate people into respect. He, of course, doesn't try and lead with fear, try and induce respect. Well, you better respect me because of... He doesn't have to demand it. His lifestyle shows that he is a man to be respected. Quality number five. Furthermore, he must be hospitable. Hospitable. Uh, This means that this is a man who opens his home to strangers. That's the idea of it. A friend to strangers. Naturally, this would overflow especially to those that are believers. He goes out of his way to care for others. This isn't a personality trait in terms of being extroverted. I want that to be clear. This man is hospitable because he is selfless and he thinks about others regularly. And he willingly welcomes others and opens up his home to them. Now, one thing to notice in this list is how Paul first paid attention to what a godly man is like, that is to say what he pursues. And I passed over able to teach because that's a point coming later. But once we reach verse 3, I want you to notice how there's a change in this qualification list. 
where now instead of Paul speaking about what the man of God avoids or um, uh, steer clear of, um, he now talks about or what he does, the things he pursues, now he looks at what the man of God avoids or steer, steers clear of. So quality number six, uh, this man is not a drunk. He is not given to drunkenness. An elder must not be addicted to wine. Obviously, by extension, that would include any other drug that would alter one's mind, conduct, or choices. Quality number seven, also excluded in this man's life, is violence. He must not be pugnacious. Uh, He must not strike out at others physically. And, of course, by extension, spiritually, verbally, or emotionally. But he's gentle. He's gentle. He's careful and how he treats people. He really does care how they are affected by their choices. He's thoughtful. He wants to speak the truth, but he wants to speak the truth in love. He wants to use his words to edify, to build up, not to destroy or to tear down. Quality number eight, quarrelsome, is also banned. Quarrelsomeness. An elder must not be contentious or quick-tempered so as to bicker and spar with others. He, he really doesn't enjoy getting into arguments and disputes. It's just not, not a thing for him. He, he's willing to enter tense conversations, difficult conversations, especially when the glory of God is at stake and the health of the church is at stake and fidelity to the truth is at stake. But, but he doesn't go looking for a fight. It's not his joy to go toe-to-toe with someone. He does try to avoid such situations. Also, we are told he is not a lover of money. He is not a lover of money. Obviously, we can uh, understand why this is very important. Uh, one of the elders' responsibilities is to make sure to take the resources that the people of God have given to the church and steward those resources so that the ministry of the church would go forward. First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter's instructions to elders, are that they would shepherd the flock and not for shameful gain. A man who is greedy can certainly look to serve the church and work for the church because of what he gets from it financially. This is not a good motivation into ministry. And obviously it's not because of all the challenges we talked about earlier. If financial gain motivation you're going to find you're never compensated well enough for the work. So he must not be greedy, not a lover of money. Next, quality number 10, he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Now, obviously, since we noted earlier that a man doesn't need to be married, similarly, he doesn't need to have a family. However, if he has a family, then it must be clear This is a man who loves his wife sacrificially, and his children respect and obey him. He appropriately leads his children and his family. In terms of children, 
Obviously, it must be taken into consideration what the normal pattern of childhood and adolescent growth and development is. He's not going to have perfect kids. He's still raising vipers and diapers like everyone else, too. Come on, that was supposed to be a little bit of a laugh. Come on. So he's not going to have a perfect family. He's not going to have perfect kids. But his, but his children genuinely, they respect him. They are willing to submit to his leadership. They are willing to do what he is asking them to do. There is, there is much debate, I guess, plenty of it, in what it means to keep one's children submissive because the word uh, pistos is used here, and it's the word for faithful or faith. So the question is, are these children of the elders, is it required that they be believers, or is it that they simply submit to the authority of their father? Uh, my position, uh, particularly based on Titus 1, verse 6, is that uh, they are not required to be believers, they just have to be willing to submit that they, they follow their father's guidance and direction. Now, Titus 1, verse 6 says this, His children um, are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Um, that, that seems to, to make things a little bit more clear. Uh, that they are not uh, living a reckless lifestyle outside of the home. Their actions are in check because of the leadership and love of their father. Quality number 11, if you're keeping track then, we come to this. An elder must be, not be a new convert. He must not be a new convert. So, he, he must not be a new Christian. He must not be someone who's just recently come to faith in Jesus Christ. Now, obviously, we aren't giving, given a, a, you know, a time regarding how long a person has to be a believer until they are qualified for the work, but I think the idea is you kind of take an inventory and, and, and you take into consideration the context of the church and its ministry, and you go, how does this person's spiritual maturity compare to what the rest of the flock is and where they are at. Um, you know, as, as you look at Paul's missionary journeys, perhaps you've noted that, uh, noticed that Paul and Barnabas, they appointed at the conclusion of their first missionary journey uh, elders to lead the church. Certainly in that case, where there's new churches, uh, the elders appointed couldn't have been, uh, you know, very far into their faith, right? But Again, given the context, and it's a new church, and they were probably still those that were the furthest along and had been Christians the longest. So he must not be a new convert, and we're told why he should not be a new convert, that he may, or else he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's always this temptation with leadership, uh, to think you're a bigger deal than you actually are. Uh, and so one who is newer in the faith, that's a, especially a temptation, probably because they haven't gone through the fire of God's trials and temptations 
or I shouldn't say not God's temptations, but they haven't gone through the trials of life and seen God bring them out of various temptations that they have faced. The fact is, the longer you're a Christian, one thing should become increasingly clear. You are a sinner in need of the grace and mercy of God. And you don't ever become less in need of it. You actually only become in more need of it each and every day that you live your life. So he must not be a recent convert. Next, he must be well thought of by outsiders. And to say it another way, his life adorns the gospel with good works. That if you were to say, go into his workplace, talk to his boss, talk to his coworkers, that by and large, they would say good things about him. He submits to authority. He himself is able to follow instructions. He cares for those around him. If he is the kind of man that's like nobody wants to work with, he is disqualified. The church is not the place for him to lead. A few more comments are in order. In Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, there are four other characteristics not listed in 1 Timothy 3. Some of those include that he must be a lover of good, setting his mind on all that's noble and honorable, and engaging in good works, that he is upright, that means being fair and impartial, and that he is holy, meaning that he lives a separated life from sin and a a life unto God. Also, that he is disciplined or self-controlled with the decisions he makes So this is who an elder must be, and I hope if you hear nothing else that I say this morning, then you would hear this, that when it comes to an elder then, what is it that God desires? He doesn't care about a man's popularity. He doesn't care about his wealth. He doesn't care about his business expertise. This isn't a board of directors that we're calling someone to. He he doesn't care about their education. He doesn't care about their social standing. He doesn't care about their rhetorical prowess or any of these things, but who a man is before him. Set apart, devoted, holy, honorable. So that is who an elder must be. He must be a man. He must have eldership aspirations. He must have godly character. Now let's notice the fourth requirement. Fourthly, he must have biblical competence. This is where we kind of come back. Check. All right. So he must have godly character requirement number four. Now we come to he must have biblical competence. Look at the font on this screen, huh? He must have biblical competence. And here's where I want to circle back where... As you look at the the qualification list, one thing you'll notice is that, by and large, all of these qualifications are character-related, but there is one specific ability that's mentioned in the list, and what is it? He must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. And we've talked about this, especially last week, as we thought about the work of an elder, but at the, at the center of the work of an elder is what? It is the responsibility to teach and preach the Word of God and defend 
the truth of God's word from false teaching and false teachers. Given then that this is the the primary way in in which an elder shepherds the flock, he must be able to, Paul says, to teach. In Titus 1.9, we read, He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Two aspects to one's teaching ministry. Yes, they put forth what the Word of God says. They give the sense of what God's Word means. They tell you not only what it says, but what it means by what it says. But then secondly, there's also this defensive posture that's required where they take captive erroneous lies and ideologies that raise themselves against the knowledge of Christ. And this is a challenge Arguments are not always so clear. Most arguments are deceiving or, or enticing because there's an element of truth in them. The man of God, who's called to be an elder, has to be able to see those nuances. And they have to be able then to go back to the Word and explain in its proper context what it rightly means. So he must have a biblical competence. Lastly then, and finally, requirement number five, he must have spiritual courage. He must have spiritual courage. Now, you can look through this list and you won't notice that courage is mentioned, but I honestly think that as you read from cover to cover of the Bible, you're going to realize that this is foundational to any position in leadership. Moses needed courage. Joshua needed courage. One of my favorite passages in this regard is contemplating Joshua chapter 1, where God says to Joshua in verses 5 through 9, Be strong and courageous, for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do all according to the law that Moses my servant commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that's written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous, and then you will have good success. What have I commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And the reality is that as someone commits themselves to the work of being an elder, um, he will be attacked. He will be, he will let people down. He will make decisions that disappoint others. It's unavoidable. And when this happens, he will be criticized. When he seeks to care for the sheep, he will be bitten by them, even if he means well, even if he's in the right. For those that are involved in his life, he's going to be seen as a complete failure in the eyes of the world. People aren't going to understand his work at all. Why would you give your time to the church? Don't you have better things that you can do? Don't you have a retirement that you could focus on? Don't you have a vacation you could take? Why would you burden yourself with this? In stepping up to be an elder, he will also become the object of Satan's schemes. Becoming an elder means running straight to the front lines of battle. 
And so in all these things, the elder must have faith to enter the unknown, to step into the uncomfortable, and to trust God for the impossible. I hope as I've just gone through this list that your heart is filled with gratitude for the work of elders. I hope you also understand, as we've talked about time and again, why we say elders are not simply trained. They're actually given by God. God gives elders to the church because he loves his church. He has raised the bar high for who elders are because he wants to know that his sheep are cared for with tender love, with spiritual courage, with biblical truth. Thank you so much for listening. We hope this sermon encourages you as you go about your week. If you're in Castleton or even the Fargo-Moorhead area, come check us out. Our website is harvestplainschurch.org. That's harvestplainschurch.org. Thanks again, and we hope you'll tune in next week.